Burma's podcast. ইসলাম um he's besides being a gp he's also the chairman of islamic political party his putahrir and that is none other than dr abdul wahid assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh dili and brothers and sisters watching how are you <laughs> i'm very well how are you alhamdulillah alhamdulillah can't complain bro alhamdulillah um there's a bit of interference so please forgive me for that echo can you hear it yes i can hear you can well you? yeah okay fantastic You know sometimes I have to be very mindful when I introduce you on things cuz there's a blurry line between brother and uncle but you have the heart of the brother and uh, the body of even a younger brother So face check So shall I call you <laughs> shall I call you beta No 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 you no, can't do that <laughs> How's things for you Alhamdulillah alhamdulillah beta I'm I'm fine and um, I'm okay <laughs> Yeah no alhamdulillah everything's good uh, very busy but very good mashallah alhamdulillah yeah i, I would that, say this lockdown hasn't made anything quieter for me <laughs> i'm not okay. i'm certainly so, not looking for things to do <laughs> okay so it's inter- so it's interesting that when i was speaking to you about frontline gp you said well what's a backline gp yeah. right now in terms of like the the volume of patients that you're dealing with at your clinic has it been the same or has there been a clear spike Uh so th- there was a clear spike the week before last it was it was massively uh, busy 2 weeks ago um and then actually last week in the last week a lot of gp practices have changed to dealing with things by phone in order to stop patients coming and cross infecting themselves in the healthcare setting um and then you only get people seen where they absolutely need to be seen uh to reduce that infection risk to each other um so that kind of changed it a lot last week i don't say it wasn't busy but it was very different it was not very little face to face contact um but as i'm looking forward i think that's even that some of this will change um as um when the so called surge happens there will probably be a spillover from what the hospitals will be unable to cope with into the community so then the kind of gp type work will be added to by stuff that ordinarily would be get dealt with by hospitals so and so sorry it's a kind of calm before a a storm we're expecting actually that's how i would put it at the moment although i'd say it's still been busier than normal yeah and for and for the patients that you have been seeing face to face are there are there any kind of extra protective or precautionary measures that you take in terms of when you speak with them and when you talk yeah, to them yeah so as we, opposed to a norm, we, we a wear time. masks aprons and gloves these are the three things we 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 wear and it, you know I, there's a lot been said about this that actually there should be goggles actually there should be not just aprons but things that cover the sleeves uh, as well um there's a lot i mean there was an article yesterday uh, that mentioned that the decision on this was taken some while ago uh and it was a cost saving thing um it reflects a lot actually if if there had been proper investment at certain times proper decisions at certain times the overall cost to britain 
in terms of the economic cost would be and life cost would be a lot less. Um, but it's spending too little, and now the probably what's going to come is going to be when even if it's right, might be a, a little later than is ideal, and that will have a cost uh, undoubtedly on lives and on and on the economy because that's that's we're in unprecedented times actually. Now there's been a no- you know a number of people have criticised the UK's handling of the pandemic, especially when they first proposed yeah. uh, the possibility of herd immunity. Then they kind of scrapped that. Now they've implemented a partial lockdown. You know, cracks, major cracks within the NHS are now clearly showing under resourced, etc. I'm going to posit to you, Abdul Wahid, based on a conversation that means you had yesterday via Telegram. Mm. Yeah, how does any state, any government, Islamic or not? adequately prepare for a pandemic how how can they it's a, it's a good question and i think the the answer i said to you there is that no state can ever plan for the unexpected so uh, you know earthquakes disasters disease floods uh, these can happen um, but then some things are not wholly unexpected so if i give you an analogy in britain how many years have we now seen flooding that has flooded people out of their homes time and time again. The first time it's happened, a government could realistically say, you know what, this was unexpected. But when it happens three, four, five years in a row, they can't then say this was unexpected. They have to have had some contingency plans. And even in year one, some experts could have said, well, you know, you've run down the flood defences so much year after year, decade after year, decade, underinvesting. In the end, at some point, it would have been inevitable. And, and you can say the same with healthcare, really. You know, the, the system here is run on a very low budget compared to comparable countries, developed countries, which use different health systems. They might be private, they might be insurance, they might be state. But, but in the rank, Britain ranks very low in terms of how much it spends. Um, and also its um, cushions for the most vulnerable in society are, are very thin indeed. And so when something hits like this, it means there's no cushion for people. Um, and it's not true to say it's wholly unexpected. Department of Health, public health, governments do know that the potential for a viral pandemic like this has been there. When SARS first appeared in the, in the Far East years ago, there was talk, will it be contained to the Far East or will this thing become a global pandemic? Uh, and it didn't. Um, then some years after that, there was swine flu and it did become <laughs> globally widespread, except it just wasn't very, it wasn't a very serious illness. So a lot of the scenarios exist and, and the experts know that. And that's why where some of the experts are criticizing government. Um, they were saying that, you know, in January, they could have been on red alert. They should have been on red alert. It was clear this is either going to be locked down in one province in China or it's going to affect the whole world. And then if it affects the whole world, we don't understand this virus yet. We don't know its full potential. So they, they could have been more ready than they have been. And, and I think the criticisms are really legitimate. Um, and the other criticism is when they did put their plan on the table, it was frankly the wrong plan. It was a plan, and, and this is probably good for brothers and sisters watching to understand, 
they would have had several scenarios put down for them by the experts. So when the, when the politicians say we're, we're led by the science, that's only partially true. They are, but then they have to make a decision, right? And they would have calculated option A will affect the economy slightly, will cost X number of deaths and X amount of inconvenience. And option B has variables and option C may be the least deaths the most inconvenience and the most economically costly, right? Um, so if government goes for the, the cheap option, which protects the economy, but costs most lives, they may have an argument for that. And in fact, the herd immunity argument isn't stupid. Um, if I just explain, I mean, this, this thing people would have understood if you, if you protect, if, 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 um, if 60, 70% of the population becomes immune because of they've got the infection, the remaining 30, 40% are less likely to get the infection, right? But I think the, 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 if there is a strength to this, the strength is that they're not expecting the, the surge now to be the only surge. They're expecting in winter, this virus could come back with a vengeance. So if you lock everyone down, what you're doing is you're potentially making the winter surge much worse. So if there was a degree of immunity in the population, they'll be more protected when it comes to the winter. So there, there's not, it's not a completely crazy idea. It's just actually what they found last week was when they did the maths, the, the number of deaths they were estimating before was many more. They're saying potentially up to half a million could die with the existing policy. So um, that's why there was... There's a very interesting article in the Times which explained, explained how in literally 48 hours they not just changed the policy, but they, they, they put in place the, the current steps that we have now, um, which even then are not arguable. I mean, I, I don't know about where you are, Dilly, but where I am, it's a very light touch lockdown. It's not really, you know, it's... Same, same. I mean, I mean, I mean I'd even barely call it a partial lockdown, if anything. I mean... I mean, the police officers are, are politely approaching people and saying, hey, guys, you know, you need to be home. But there's still people out and about, you know, yes. not necessarily respecting social distance. Yes, things are quieter, but it's not a full lockdown by any means. Um, it's an interesting point you made about the options put on the table to governments. And yeah. with regards to the UK, and I'm assuming the same would be the case with the US and other Western nations, yeah. is that they would have to make a, an assessment based on death toll against their economy right is that is that reflective of normal capitalist states or is that something which is understandable that any government or any state again islamic or non and when we say islamic let's just make it clear that none exist comprehensively as we speak yeah that that they would have to do some kind of checks and balances that look, if we tell people to lock down, if we have an isolation policy across the country, that there are key institutions and industries within this country that if we stop, it can bring the economy of that respective state to its knees, which will then cause even greater problems besides a pandemic. So is this something which is just specifically restricted to capitalist countries, which is practically the whole world? Or is it something which is understandable and, and the economy is something that has to be factored in when looking at pandemic uh, policies? So you're right. Both play a part for any any political ruler. Um, I, I, just that you have to understand in capitalist states, 
it will always be the economy that trumps everything else. And for for the okay, there are going to be some who are incredibly greedy and 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 in the pocket of the capitalists themselves. There are others who philosophically believe that if the economy is damaged, that costs people's lives in other ways. Okay, mm. so um, but. Tr- truthfully, what you've seen here and in the States as well, I think especially um, here in Britain and in the States as well, is is the decision making has very clearly showed in the early stages that they put the economy first. All right. And the lack of a cushion. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering why the death rate in the States, the most wealthy country on the planet in human history, um, is so high. Um, and, and and I wonder when they do the analyses of these things, it will be that the people dying are the underclass in America. The people dying yeah. are people who, you know, because the, the health insurance system doesn't cushion them at all. OK, mm. so, I, you know, I you know, it may be that when somebody pays their health insurance, that they're not their premium doesn't include uh, the critical care. If you see what I mean, yeah, it could be yeah, that it's yeah. like that. I, I don't know. I haven't looked at it in detail, but I, I think you have to understand that in these states they do make these decisions, and even ultimately, when the government's changed its mind, it's changed its mind because the, the, it, if they had let it play out, it would have been a catastrophe for them of unprecedented proportions. I mean, you know, you can't have people being managed in huts outside a hospital. Yeah, you can't have images of like masses of bodies waiting to be buried without, you know, the potential for rebellion. I mean, frankly, that is what that is the kind of scenario in months to come. They have to think about a potential scenario they have to think about. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, it, it, in a, the, the difference, I think, is in the in the concept of Islam, the principles of Islam in governance. Uh, it cannot come for the economy cannot come first in this situation. Preservation of deen and preservation of life. Absolutely. So, so when Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam said in a famous hadith narrated in Sahih Muslim, "Kullukum ra'in wa kullukum mas'ulun an ra'yati." Every one of you is a shepherd, and every one of you has a gut responsible for what they are responsible over. Imam al-ladhi ala nasi ra'in. And the imam of the of the of the people, of the people, the leader of the people, the Khalifa in the case of the Muslims, he is a shepherd, he's a guardian, and he's going to be asked about he what he was responsible over. And in these matters, politics and Islam, that if you say if there's a principle, one principle, one principle of many, but one principle is looking after the affairs of people is the role of the politician and the ruler. So you can't look after the affairs of just the rich people who ha- run the businesses, that own the businesses, that uh, are, are saying, look, if you let us go down, all these people are going to lose their jobs. You can't just run it according to that. You have to run it according to what is best for the people. And that's firmly embedded in our understanding. And when Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq an, took his uh, bay'ah as the first khalifa, he, he said in in a famous narration, in the meaning, you know, the weakest amongst you are foremost in my eyes until I have restored to them what is their rights. So so you can't, you have to actually look from the base people who are going to be affected by this most. 
And mm. I mean, even the decision making here recently in London, mashallah, we've seen all the homeless people are going to get put in hotels. Yeah. But in the midst yeah. of winter, when they were on the streets and they didn't have the potential no for infecting people and therefore affecting the economy yeah. of London, there was no hotels for them. Yeah. It gives yeah. you some insight into the workings of that political thinking and that philosophy that underlies the whole thing. Mm. Just quickly, before we move on to the topic of isolation and, and, and the kind of precautions you're taking with looking after your dear mother, um, in terms of like um, now providing these services, is it coming across as too little too late perhaps? What do you think? Uh, it is. It is. It does feel like that as a doctor. It does feel like that, and we're without any axe to grind. Um, back at the beginning of February, I, I actually had a continuous cough, which by today's standards, I should have been socially. I should have been self isolating for seven to fourteen days, right? And I looked on all the NHS guidance and I looked at our local policies and the only people that would get tested at that time were people who traveled to China, Wuhan province in China or a few other countries where it was established or had had contact with a proven case. Okay. So there were, and I was seeing patients like that as well. And I was checking the guidance and there was no way to get these people tested and isolated. All right. Only if somebody was so sick, they were ending up going to the hospital where they're getting tested then, or if they'd been traveling, or if they'd had direct contact with a proven case. So now when we're six weeks, four weeks, six weeks down the line from that, I'm thinking to myself, you know, um, the Korean, the South Korean policy of uh, testing, 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 quarantining, contact tracing, and actually then letting a lot of society getting on with things themselves may have seemed yeah. more expensive in the beginning if they'd done it. But actually, it's actually locked down the virus pretty well in South Korea at the moment. Um, but people were coming back from China and other places and cruise ships. Britain was letting them back when, you know, the, the Islamic philosophy of if you've got a plague in a region... Nobody goes in, nobody goes out. Yeah, you yeah, don't. Absolutely. You don't encourage yeah. your own citizens to come back from a plague region. Mm. It it doesn't make any any sense. So uh, it's very hard not to think that what we're doing now is too late, uh, and it's still it's still a bit too little actually uh, compared to other places. Uh, Germany seems to be doing better than Britain. And and the other thing you mentioned some stats, Dilly. I think you said it's about seventeen thousand is the current. Um, current cases uh, in Britain? Yeah, yes. in the UK, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 17,000 with 1,019 deaths. So, th so brothers and sisters should know that number means 17,000 proven COVID-positive patients, right? Yeah. Now, in the last week, eight days, I've been on the phone to like five, six people who are really unwell, Fevers going up to 40 degrees centigrade, coughing such wow. that I can hardly talk to them on the phone, but they haven't met the criteria to be seen in hospital, right? So those five, six people don't have any COVID positive testing. They're suspected cases. So for every one of these 17,000 that's had the testing done, I, my guess is you can probably say there are f four or five who 
have had severe disease, right? Part of that 20% who they yeah. say there's 80% have it mildly, 20% have it severe, and 5% so severe they end up in hospital. So this 17,000 is largely the 5% that's been in hospital, okay? Okay. There, there are a lot of other people out there who are very sick in the last week or two with this virus who haven't made it to hospital and haven't had tested. And then there's even more who don't even know they've had it or not even so sure. You're saying the, so you're saying the number is actually significantly higher in reality? Oh, unquestionably, the number is higher, which, which actually means calculating things like death rates and percentages. All of this is a bit, you know, there are some people I know that give day-by-day day number counts. <laughs> and, you know, I just look at these things and I think, you know, you're, you're sharing this data, but it's actually not that helpful. If you tell me today the death rate from COVID in Britain is, for argument's sake, if you say it's 5%, right? Yeah. Actually, it's probably less than that because that known caseload of 17,000 is actually probably, in reality, minimum five times that amount. Yeah. So, yeah. so that then the percentage that died. So you can't really make a lot of these figures. They're, 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 they're interesting and they're useful. I think, I suppose the one thing they're useful for is plotting where we are on that exponential curve. Yeah. That's the yeah. useful thing. In terms of, in terms Excuse of, me, like, I can't share my coffee with you. No, no, I would love to have shared a coffee with you, but unfortunately, <laughs> we're respecting social distancing, can't we? Absolutely. Um, you know, um, I'm going to ask you a bit of a. I don't mean the question to come across brutal or cold-hearted, right? But in terms of governments, especially the NHS, I had Dr. Simon Iqbal previously from Manchester, and she said, "Look, if it comes to a decision between." saving the life of someone who's younger than someone who's elderly, it's very likely that, you know, hospitals and medics will opt for the person who's younger. Mm. And there has, there, there does seem to be a trend, at least amongst Western governments, the US and the UK specifically, amongst others, France, Germany and others, where they've made it quite clear that, look, if push comes to shove, it's going to have to be the elderly that are going to have to take one for the team. Um, and so that mindset of the elderly are already on their way out. So we have to prioritize those who are younger. Is there some kind of Maslaha premise on this? So it's a, it's a really good question. And uh, so the, the answer to this is, yes, this thinking exists and no, it doesn't. Okay, and I'll explain what I mean. So just generally, there's a strand of thought in Britain that will think like this anyway. Older people are mm. generally forgotten about quite often. And, uh, you, you know, there's an individualism and a selfishness. And some people will think about survival of the fittest and this sort of philosophy. And, and, and sadly, that is a strand of thought. When I was at school, they used to teach us about the Reverend Malthus, who used to say mm. that the population of the world was too high and therefore yep. disease and disaster and wars they, these are levelers of the population. I don't think Malthus was saying they were a good thing, but some people who, I, the way our teacher used to tell us that, it was like, hey, you know, that's life. And it was almost yeah. like a survival of the fittest. That strand does exist. And in fact, one of the papers this week reported that a former senior government health advisor said the elderly should voluntarily decline going to hospital. Yeah. So unfortunately, that strand exists. Now, because that strand exists, people are not going to have so much trust in when doctors and nurses are making decisions, which is a problem, 
because I will say when I started as a doctor 20, uh, what was it? No, 29 years ago. Yeah, mashallah. When I started okay. as a doctor mashallah. 29 years ago, people did make decisions based on age. But now in the last, definitely the last few years, the thinking is not so much on age. The thinking is much more on will somebody benefit? Will somebody, as an individual, not the society, as an individual, will this person benefit from me giving them treatment? Will it do them harm? Okay. Um, and um, therefore, should I offer that treatment? So yeah, let me uh, give you an example. Uh, old people get arthritis, right? Imagine yeah. you've got an elderly person who's got severe arthritis in their knees. And maybe they've now hit 90 and they're finding it okay. really hard to walk. And they've got other health problems. It's not because they're aged 90 that the surgeon may not offer them the operation. It's because the benefit from the operation might be very small and the risk to the person might be very high. And if I did that same calculation on a young person, it's not because of their age, it's because of their risk and benefit for that individual, yeah. okay? And it's actually the same with ventilators. It is actually the same with that. So, you know, there is a person who is a smoker, a person who has chronic lung disease, a person who's obese. They might need the ventilator more, but they actually might not benefit from it. It might be the, it might actually cause them other problems. They might get infections from having ventilation. And so doctors will be making decisions when when the system gets overrun and they're not I don't believe they're making those decisions now because they're working at maximum capacity in the intensive cares it hasn't yet got to the stage like Italy where they're literally making life death decisions like that and when they do they will you know it could be that a, a fit 80 year old is a better candidate for a ventilator than an unfit 60-year-old that has multiple lung problems and is a smoker and whatever. And they might go for the fit 80-year-old. They might genuinely do that. But on mass, it will look like they're choosing the younger people than the older people. And mm. if you've got this background bias in society, which is slightly biased towards older against older people, it will make you feel that you don't trust what's going on. Whereas in, in reality... Okay. Uh, doctors and nurses do not, it's not simply age they make that calculation on. You know, it, it is really yep. isn't. It is, but older people do have more complex problems which make these things risky. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and I think um, the actual health approach is not a bad approach. If, we are, if you apply that health approach in Bangladesh, Delhi, where people have some yeah. respect and reverence for their older people, you would still get yeah. more younger people getting the treatment than the older people, but 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 you would trust that the decision making was more uh, done on a more fair basis. Whereas here, people people they see this at a general attitude in society, and they worry: is my is mm. my older older relative going to be you know chucked on the scrap heap? And yeah, that that's the pro that's a dilemma I think we have here. Now, now, if, now, if I'm correct, you are the primary carer for your elderly mother. Mashallah. Yeah, I don't know. Alhamdulillah. I, mean, alhamdulillah. I'm, I, I'm, I live with my mum, but Alhamdulillah. Okay. Alhamdulillah, yes. 
and 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 how is her health? How is Alhamd- she? Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. She's 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 more worried about giving me germs than I am about giving her germs. It seems to <laughs> me she's the, the, sorry, me giving her germs at the moment. Yeah. yeah? So may Allah, may Allah bless her and give Ameen. her a, a long and prosperous life Ameen. in Jannah Ameen. in the hereafter. Ameen. Make dua for her, um, inshallah. Of course. Um, what what kind of precautionary measures are you taking yeah. in terms of, you know, just trying your best in not giving her germs or you coming back from the practice? Yeah. Um, I, I know you have a very interesting theory about isolation. Yeah. Uh, and, and that it should be understood by case by case because it can have other detrimental ramifications yeah. of the elderly. T- tell me a bit about... Those two things. So, so, what are you doing personally um, to to keep safe yeah. distance or, or or trying to avoid any kind of uh, the spreading of germs? And secondly, just a bit about your understanding of isolation, especially amongst our elderly. So, I think gen- generally, I know people have said it over and over and over again, but this issue of washing hands properly uh, is is really important. So, when I come in from outside, you know, I think the thir- first thing I try and do is a proper long hand wash. And that's despite the fact that when I left work, I've done a proper long hand wash just before that. And um, uh, if if like a parcel delivery comes from outside, I'll do a proper long hand wash before I, you know, like do other things before it. So I think that is really important because for me that it's not me I'm worried about. It's carrying the germs to my mum and to other people that I, I need to be conscious of. Um and, and I think that everyone should be doing that. If I think if anyone in the family had the symptoms, cough or fever, that person should be literally quarantined off in such a way that doesn't carry the germs to the most vulnerable. No question about that. You, you need to think, if you get symptoms yourself, the first thing you need to think about is, I do not want to carry this to other people. Yeah, And, and really mm-hmm. then very strict isolation measures to deal with that. The, the issue of, of like, should the elderly just lock down for three months? Um, I think is, how can I say that? There needs to be some nuance on this, right? And I understand where people come from. The general principle should be, don't carry germs to the vulnerable and the elderly. So yes, it is better for them if they're not going out, not, mixing with people who are carrying the virus silently. The germs are not carried to them. Just like it's the same for all of us, actually. That, that's the current policy yeah. for everybody. Forget, forget yeah. just the elderly. But I, I, I see and I hear and people are asking me about questions about how they should approach their older relative. And, and, I, and this was maybe even more so before the lockdown happened. Um, with my mum, she would not go out very much in the week anyway right? There would be a couple of trips to the shops for half an hour, an hour with somebody. And maybe she'd come with me to the masjid on Friday. Okay. That isn't much for her to go out. But when she would go out, she'd feel a lot better in herself. She would have got some fresh air. She would have felt some purpose in doing summer shopping and bringing some things home for people. She would have uh, um, uh, done some walking, which she herself would say, if I don't walk, my muscles get weak. When old people's muscles get weak, they fall more, right? So we have to bear in mind that actually the the physical and mental cost for the isolating elderly people completely is very high. And I have an aunt who is locking herself in her house 
generally. She doesn't want even her kids to come and bring the virus. Alhamdulillah, I respect that in her, all right? But I have other relatives who actually, if their family members weren't coming to them, weren't giving them a kiss, weren't giving them a hug, weren't taking them for outings, they will feel that life has changed in a very, very bad way, right? And, mm. and so we need to, you, you and I need to judge these things case by case. The general rule, isolate, prevent the virus coming, keep the virus away from these people. The specifics of how much you do, how much you don't do, go out, don't go out, within what's allowed generally, yeah? I think mm. you have to understand your older people. And I, I give the analogy, I, I, every year it, coming up to Ramadan, I get an elderly uncle or auntie with their son or daughter coming with them to the surgery. And the son or daughter is saying, tell, doctor, tell my mum or dad they're not allowed to fast. All right? Mm. And, and mum and dad desperately want to do some fasts, if not the whole month, right? And I have to I look at their be. medical history and I have to look at their general well-being. You know, and I can't just say to the son or daughter, and I, say, I know you love your mum or dad, but you, your dad's come with tears in his eyes saying he wants to fast. What do you expect me to say to him? Yeah, I can say mm. to him, take these precautions, drink loads, eat well properly, suhoor, have a rest during the day, try it. But if you can't do it, you, you know, you shouldn't make yourself sick. Maybe you can't do every single day. It's very hard doing fasting back to back, day after day. I can give all those things, but why are you saying like something which is bringing tears to their eyes? Yeah. When I get old, when you get old, Dilly, you may want to be, you, you, your life may well revolve around five trips to the mosque a day, or one trip to the mosque a day, or three trips to the mosque. That might be the whole of your basis of your routine. When your son yeah. or daughter comes to you and tells you, no, you can't do it for your own well-being. Well, it might be for the well-being of your body, but recognize that it might cost your mother or father or grandmother or grandfather's heart and well-being emotionally. Yeah. And we have mm. to make these balances. So I, I stress again, the general rule, do, do, do follow the advice, isolate and try and prevent the virus going. The specific rule for your loved one, you have to know them and you have to try and okay. do and maybe even negotiate with them. So if they say, okay. no, I want to go to supermarket, then say, you know, it's, you it's so difficult to, it's so crowded, it's so filthy. My mum, even before this all happened, when she goes to supermarket, she holds onto the trolley for balance and she puts a tissue on the handle, yeah? She doesn't like it anyway. So um, I might say to her, okay, go, let's go to the high street because that's a bit more open. Yeah, it's less, mm. it's less, you know, less in everyone's faces and stuff. So yeah. I think that's the way I would approach it. Yeah. Okay. Um, now looking towards how Muslim communities have responded uh, to the pandemic and the weeks building up to the kind of red alert panic mode. Yeah. Yes. And and looking at the UK specifically, we've had and, and broadly this applies to diaspora communities in the West. We've had stampedes over rice, artan oil. We've had the hoarding of food. We've had Muslim shops increasing prices, but that's not necessarily restricted to just Muslim-owned uh, businesses. Other businesses have been doing it as well. Masajid reluctant to close until the very last minute, until you know the the government announced that places of worship would have to be locked down as well. 
even when there was guidance, they were not, they were refusing to close down hundreds, hundreds. I, I would even go as far as to say more than half of Masajid was still choosing to remain open. We've had rulings pertaining to not praying Jum'ah, potentially praying virtually with the radio playing. We've had fatawa pertaining to the burial rites, not giving ghusl and the kafan, the tayammum of the kafan. We've had so many of these things happening in the last two to three weeks. Both of us, we have mutual friends and contacts who have also been very much involved in, in, in some of the things that we've been seeing. And all these things that I just mentioned to you, right? What do you think it's reflective of? Do you think it's reflective of a robust community that's trying to prepare itself for the pandemic? Do you think it's reflective of what you said to me in a conversation that we had not too long ago, a pandemic of anxiety? What do you what do you think? Is this the Ummah dealing with a new reality? So uh, I think uh, th there's lots of things you've mixed up there. I think the first thing I'd say is Mus Muslims living in Britain are affected by many of the same things that other people are living in Britain by. So it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a general climate of anxiety. There is a common emotion of anxiety in the society. And it's in part real. The, the virus is significant. In part, it's fueled by 24-7 media coverage. Uh, in part, it will be fueled by the fact that generally people in society don't think about death. Uh, very much in a comfortable, affluent society. Uh, I, Absolutely. I would be surprised in, if in societies or environments where they have to deal with death and suffering and hardship day in, day out, that they're overwhelmed with anxiety because of the virus. Allah forbid, if the virus hits the people of Syria um, or the people of Yemen, um, it will affect them far worse. But I would guess their resilience will be far more because they have dealt with so much hardship, death and suffering, and that Absolutely. has brought them closer to Allah. And that has Absolutely. reminded this, them of the temporary nature of this life. Um, yep. And we who live in a comfortable environment where, you know, in some communities you might have, uh, in the heart of the Muslim community, you'll have janazahs fairly often. But in some communities you might have janazahs once or twice a week even, yeah? And in, yeah. in, in, in amongst non-Muslims, it's, it's like death that is not talked about and suffering is not common in this kind of way. So we're part of that society. Um, and the anxiety, there is a, I said this to you, like there are two epidemics at the moment. One is COVID-19 and one is anxiety. And that's true. A lot of what I've dealt with in the last two weeks is anxiety. Ah, oh, I've got a cough, I've got a cold, you know, the NHS 111 advice, the advice on the TV, it's very clear. You know, it's constantly talking about 80% of people get mild illness. They don't need to do anything. They just need to not spread it to other people. But people are anxious and people ring and people call. And the anxiety drives a survival instinct. So, you know, oh, you know, fight or flight. And, and so, you know, that will be natural anywhere. So, They'll hoard toilet paper, they'll hoard rice, they'll hoard flour, they'll hoard oil, they'll hoard medication. Okay, a lot of the busyness doctors will tell you in the last couple of weeks is patients who are worried they won't get their medication. So they're ordering it in advance. And that's leaving the pharmacist short, which means that, you know, when somebody comes in a week's time and says, can I have my medication? The pharmacy is going to say, I've run out of stock. No. Yeah, you've run out. Yeah. So, um, now, that, that survival instinct is made worse in a society which encourages 
individually, encourages materialism, encourages that thinking. So if we have, as a Muslim community, become guilty of that, it's because we are part of a society where the, such things are common. And if we are Muslims, part of the benefit of this Islam should be that it reminds us of our attitude to things like rizq. That rizq comes yeah. from Allah. That the shops yeah. could be completely empty, but Allah will, will find a way to provide for you. Yes, if you trust in him and you tawakkul, reliance on Allah. And, and also rulings that, that actually we've learned you know, an Islamic ruling coming out that it's prohibited to buy something so that you monopolize it and other people are left without. Um, so that these, these things are good for us to learn. They are indeed new realities for us, but with regards to Juma and Janaza and stuff, Dili, I think this is uh, actually a reflection of a lack of leadership, a lack of genuine Islamic leadership and a lack of leadership in the country, all right? So these are two different things. Uh, one is the, 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 the different responses to Juma reflect a difference in opinion on, on, a, on an Islamic ruling. So yeah. all, all the fuqaha will say, all imams, all scholars, all tulab al-ilm would say Juma is wajib on the adult male who's physically capable, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all of them will say it's wajib not to cause harm to others or to be harmed. Now, yeah. reconciling when does the going to Jummah or holding the Jummah gathering cause harm or cause you to be harmed or cause harm to others, this is going to be a subject of discussion, right? And it's not an easy one to work out. So uh, if I give you the analogy in China, when the pandemic is starting in Wuhan city, should the mosques yeah. in Beijing lock down? No, because it hasn't spread there yet. So, well, so I don't know. So well, we don't that, that's my you see what I mean? There view, could yeah. be a legitimate debate that one could say, yeah. oh, just in case we've got silent cases in Beijing, we should lock down. And others would say, no, Wuhan city should lock down. And within Wuhan city, maybe they can go for Jummah all they like, right? But, yeah. but it shouldn't spread. No, this is a legitimate thinking, it's possibly. Yeah? No, no, it's like, do you see what if I mean? If it's contained and quarantined in Wuhan, then it, yeah, it, people it, can pray Jummah in what, Wuhan. What yeah. it reflects is uh, a, a, different, a sincere difference of understanding of what is the actual harm or what is the risk of actual harm and what, re what degree of harm is required to restrict a wajib, right? And, yeah. and you will have difference. Now, in the Islamic understanding, we are ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of you know, 1.2, 1.5 billion people, right? Where you have such a difference in any area or any region, there should be a, an amir that settles difference of opinion, right? You, you are inevitably going to have difference and it require, and there is no, in the Muslim world today, one reason you get different responses at different times in different countries, different cities, is there is no such Amir to solve that difference. And where there are rulers, they're not terribly well respected. So I might be looking at what's happening, say, in Pakistan, where the government is saying, you know, you should stay at home, you should lock down, there's curfew. And 
some large Islamic sects are holding gatherings of thousands. Okay, and yeah. you know what that reflects is not a suicidal mentality. It doesn't reflect a a a, a, a majnoon mentality. It reflects the fact that they don't trust this guy sitting Absolutely. there yeah. to make a sincere yeah. decision on their behalf. Right, and yeah. and so that's the leadership in the Muslim world. Let's come back to Britain. What is a masjid supposed to think when two to three weeks ago the government advice is very light touch, right? At that time, football matches are going on, the economy is running fully, none of the festivals have been cancelled like Glastonbury, people are talking about the Olympics and Euro 2020, and then suddenly there's a debate amongst the Muslim community. Oh my God, we need to lock down our masajid and we need to cancel Jummah and Jamaat prayers. Don't you know you're harming everyone? Even though those brothers and sisters who are arguing that, even if they're right in terms of their understanding of the health risk, the average imam or mosque committee chair will be looking at the stark contrast in what they've been asked to do compared to the rest of the country and thinking, what? Why are they asking me to close this down? And and, if and I may interject. In a, sorry, just to finish that point. In in addition to that, no, go on. You go. I talk too much. Go on. You go. No, 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 no. And I love hearing your voice. But the point is, it's a point relating to the one that you've just made. The counter argument would then be to Abdul Wahid is that why do we need the government to lead in guidance and telling us what to do? Why can we not take the preemptive measure? And, and why do we have to wait for the government? So, so this, this is, I'm sorry to say, this is a sort of level of decline in thinking of us as Muslims, which unfortunately, um, it's, it's like, this, is a, this is a health matter, right? But this is a yeah. public health matter. This is a health matter which requires a political decision to solve it. If the, you know, one point, sorry, three to five million Muslims in the UK decide to lock down themselves and everything else is carrying on, it's not going to make a dot of difference in that context, okay? It's, it's, because everything else is still running. You require a decision. This is the lack of leadership in Britain that did not lock it down and send a clear signal to all the public, including the Muslim community here, that this is what is required, all right? So when people were having this debate, I couldn't get my head around it. It would be like saying... Um, you know, it, it would be like saying that, uh, you know, in fact, you, you, when you look at the, the Church of England, for example, who, or the Catholic Church, who are actually much more used to a sort of secular split, they, they had no intention of stopping their normal services. Um, mm. They had no intention until they were told that this is a sufficiently big public health issue to do that. And that's not because... They, um, uh, they don't care about the issue. It's just because they recognize that there are some issues that need to be dealt with from a top-down approach. You can't yeah. make decisions on this sort of issue at a local level or, a, or an institutional level like this. If you do, alhamdulillah, you might be doing something. If you've had that, now, if you had that understanding yourself as a chairman of a mosque, and you said, okay, you know what? I'm going to put the hygiene measures in. I'm going to put the mats in. I'm going to like discourage elderly people from coming. I'm going to discourage, I'm going to ban anyone who's got symptoms, right? And you do all of those things yourself 
for the sake of your congregation, alhamdulillah. But that person that then self-isolates from Jummah, if you like, goes to the yeah. supermarket and is within two meters of somebody else. They're using the same shopping trolleys. They're then going on the underground, commuting to and from work or on the, on the buses or whatever. It, 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 from, a, from a general public health perspective, it makes no difference. So recognize there's a difference of opinion in the fiqh. One group isn't smart and the other group stupid. It's, it's, it's an understandable <laughs> difference which reflects a lack of leadership both amongst Muslims and amongst, mm. um, amongst the, the, the government, actually. As we bring the podcast to a close, I'm glad you actually very you made that point because the way it has been presented, uh, like this kind of um, difference between those masajid and institutions and and movements that said no masajid should remain open until the very last minute, or in the Muslim world in places like Pakistan, Bangladesh, where they're still choosing to keep masajid open, um, it's been presented as if those who are calling for closure. Of Juma and congregation prayers very early on were more kind of the progressive, nuanced school of thinking of scholars and tulabal ilm and activists. Whereas those who are calling for, hey, listen up, guys, let's just take some precautionary measures. Let's look at each city or town case by case. Let's take the feelings of the musallis and the congregation in mind that they were kind of presented as the the kind of more regressive, backward guys. It, it was kind of presented as that, at least in the online sphere. Right, where we even had a number of prominent uh, du'at from the US, right, who were using this kind of language that those who are calling for early closure are more progressive and more and, and more nuanced and and robust in their thinking, and those who were persisting in keeping the massages open still had a very backward, dirty mentality that oh, Allah's house is the protective um, house of everything, and 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 there there was an absence of medical thing. I I find it very uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. Really... It, is, it isn't nice. And in fact, the irony of it is that actually, you know, when you look at it from a public health perspective, if if the measures that have been taken were the kind of measures that, like from an Islamic perspective, this idea of, first of all, the, the place where it starts should be locked down. Literally, you, nobody should be in, nobody should be out. Right? That's number one. Number two, if you'd followed the best public health model of contact trace, testing, 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 contact, uh, isolating the people with it, contact tracing their contacts and isolating anyone who's tested positive. Actually, in those countries, the society carried on largely, the, those people who were not affected by it largely carried on with their daily lives. So in that model, you wouldn't have to necessarily suspend a wajib completely. You might rather... Um, uh, put measures in the mosque that was strictly, if you have symptoms, you're banned. Yeah. Uh, if you have, um, uh, uh, use the hand, hand washing, contact, um, uh, mats on the floor, sanitizer, you know, all these things. In fact, you could have gone even further. You could have volunteered the masajid to be the center for testing. And then that would be the starting the isolating quarantining process. Yeah. And mm, so mm. in that, that thinking, so it's 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 a lack of nuanced thinking on both sides, but at the same time, khair, you know, we are going to have a difference on this, and don't start attacking your brothers over this kind of thing. It's it's wrong. It's not the right way. Mm. It's not it's not that mm. kind of a, a matter that's so clear cut. Yeah, 
Final question of today's podcast. Yes, uh, I know you. I know you're gonna have a pop at me saying that you've not exactly left me much time to answer. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. No problem. There's also a discussion taking place uh, within Muslim communities, uh, especially the Muslim world, but also here in the West. That is the coronavirus pandemic a punishment from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, or is it in fact a test and a reflection of Allah's mercy uh, to the Ummah? Uh, and and I guess those who have argued that this could be a punishment from Allah have cited uh, verses from the Quran that uh, the corruption of the hands and the land on the sea is to do with your own doings. That's a paraphrasing of the verse. Um, others are saying, no, we cannot conclusively say this is a punishment because it's not Allah's will. But there is that discussion taking place. What's your thoughts on this? Yani, we, we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah says verily we will test you with something of fear right and People are afraid, right? And and you and some loss of your wealth and your life. So there'll be fear of loss of wealth and life, and there'll be real loss of wealth and life, right? So Allah's testing us. And be give glad tidings to the sabirin. And and this is this is how I look at it, because Allah says, you know, uh, those, the sabirin, those who when a, an affliction afflicts them, they say, inna lillahi wa inna like, We are from Allah and will return to Allah. Uh, and those are the ones that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, His salawat, His blessings will be on them. And they are the ones who are rightly guided. So actually in the end, this becomes a test for us in how we behave. How we behave in our shopping, in our hoarding or not hoarding, how we behave with our neighbors and caring for them because you know you, you need to look out for them as well. We have we have a guy next door to us who uh, is on his own in his 80s and my wife sends me, my kids round to check before we go shopping, do you need anything? Um, we, it's a test for us as a community and how we deal with each other on these issues like difference of opinion. And in the Muslim world in particular, it's a test for us in terms of how we behave in terms of on a societal level. Is the society being governed by people who are looking after the affairs of people according to Islam or not? And if not, mm. why aren't we speaking up about that? Why aren't we trying mm. to change the system about that? And su such mm. are the... Uh, the tests that are fall upon us and uh, the test that do I believe that Allah is the one who controls disease and sickness and health yes. and brings the cure yes. or do I have faith yes. in my own self-isolation and social distancing and my doctor and the hospitals yeah do I believe that my life and death is in Allah's hands and it's written all right mm. or am I so scared of death that I'm in a panic mode at the moment. And and so I, I do believe that. And in fact, Rasulullah he said in oh, one hadith, Innahu Azabun Yabahullahu Yasha. Indeed, Allah will uh, punish uh, people with a plague, whomever he wills. Wa Allah Jalahu Rahmatan 
للمؤمنين and Allah will make the plague or, or these kind of things a, a, a mercy for the believers uh, how can such a thing be a mercy for us yeah well mercy comes when Allah makes a, a hardship you have as a purification for your sins mercy comes that if Allah takes the life of a believer through this plague inshallah he takes them as shaheed yeah and inshallah, the, the akhirah mercy comes because we start behaving better inshallah with each other mercy comes because we start to look to his deen to solve our problems and to understand and draw closer to allah so i think i think uh, we need to just be uh, a little bit more conscious of these things and um uh, I don't say these two evidences where we cause corruption in our own hands uh, and th these evidences are um, mutually exclusive, actually. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Humanity has caused corruption at its own hands on the earth, right? But um, some of the victims of this plague are not people who had any control over that. And therefore, we know that through this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings his mercy and it's not just about punishment and um, uh, so maybe if there's one blessing if that can be called or one good thing that can be called is that people maybe are more conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and more thoughtful about the way we live our lives as as people because I don't think this message of Islam this mercy of Islam this prophet of Islam sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was a rahmah for the Muslims. He was a rahmah for al-alamin, and and maybe maybe other people around the world will see this as well uh, through this. That that actually there is something there that, about the way we've been living that is is diseased, <laughs> yeah, and in mm. in every way that there's a, there's a real problem with the way we live as humanity. Jazakumullah Abdul Wahid. and may Allah keep you and your families your family and your loved ones and all the brothers and sisters watching safe in his protection and his care and may he keep this ummah safe and 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 make us not forget that there's much suffering out there aside from the coronavirus in many places around the world and we don't forget about I mean, those muslims I mean. and keep actually everyone safe and bring every person uh, goodness through this uh, because this is something affecting Amin, everybody actually and there isn't a single person who's not affected by this in some way shape or form Allahumma ameen ya rab jazakumullah khair brothers and sisters um, that's all for today uh, please like and share this video subscribe to the five pillars youtube channel please use some a lot of the things which dr abdul wahid told us about reflecting upon you know, Allah, Allah's existence, um, death, how we as Muslims are living in the societies in predominantly non-Muslim lands uh, in the West. Think about our brothers and sisters who put in the side the pandemic, the plague, the suffering that's been taking place, put into perspective that perhaps we are tasting a very minuscule level of difficulties that Muslims around the world are facing on a daily basis. Use this time for reflection, use this time to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and reflect upon the the indisputed reality of death and, and use this time to get closer to Allah. And inshallah, I pray that Allah protects our loved ones, protects the Muslimin, protects those who are oppressed, protects those who have been affected by this uh, safe, inshallah. Ameen ya Rabb. And until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And before I close, there will also be updated stats on the screen right now.
Take care, brothers and sisters. Salam alaikum. Flood Brothers Podcast. Five Pillars of Mad Monarchs Production.